I just felt the other day, I felt God say to me, Starla, you don't realize the significance of the series of the I am statements. Because we're living in a world with many worldviews, shifting and changing. People don't even hold to their worldview sometimes. With many false prophets on the rise. And we need to be able to recognize truth in this day and age. And Jesus made some absolute statements. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And so that statement is a bold statement, quite exclusive and also wonderfully inclusive. It's exclusive in that he's saying, I am the only way to the Father, to God, but it's also inclusive because that invitation is open to anyone who believes. And we live in a world which is hating and rejecting absolutes, especially people in authority who are putting in an absolute truth. Pluralism is very much the fashion statement and the rise on the West, actually where India is actually moving back into more of the Hinduism roots and China is moving back into the the teachings of, is it Confucius? He is going, they're moving back into those dogmatic teachings Pluralism is actually on the rise, and the definition of that is it's the idea that all views are equally valid. And you've heard that common statement, all roads lead to God. But that statement doesn't even make sense because not all religions are actually posing that all roads lead to God. If we look at Christianity, Christianity is saying, yes, we will be with our creator, we will be with God for eternity in his presence. But if we look at other religions, they are just promised a place. They just promised a paradise. They're not promised God. There's no certainty of that. They promised pleasures in paradise. And if we look at Buddhism, the, the ultimate path in life is nirvana, a state of nirvana, which actually means to be extinguished, to blow out. So they won't even exist. And so actually it's atheistic in its thinking because they don't even believe in a God. And what about Hinduism, which believes that one day they will become like God itself, itself, the great impersonal absolute? What about this ever popular belief, relativism? It is the belief that there's no absolute truth, only the truths that a particular individual or culture happen to believe. It's also the rejection of the absolute. Be true to yourself. You know, what's, what's, what's true for me may not be true for you. But actually, there's no point of reference, and it will not stand in a court of law. God told Adam and Eve that they could enjoy every tree, but do not eat of the tree of good and knowledge, because they will surely die. And the serpent came in and deceived them and encouraged them to define good and evil themselves. And the day that man did that, they died. And they were in need of God to rescue them and restore them and save them. You, man cannot decide what is good and evil. Imagine living in a world where everyone decides their own truth. Well, we're living in a world where everyone decides their own truth. There is confusion like never before. 
Do we really believe in these I am statements of Jesus? Ravi Zacharias says, relativism is like a trunk of tree that has no roots. The tree will fall at the first storm of contradiction. Do we know what we believe about Jesus? If I had to ask you, how did you become a Christian for those who do believe in Jesus in the room? When was the turning point? When was the transformation in your life? What will you say? Will you say, well, I always was a Christian. My parents went to church and then, you know, my grandparents went to church and I suppose I just go to church and it's just something that I do. But what if your faith was shaken? What is the evidence of that faith? We have to be careful how we word, how we word, how we first met Jesus to unbelievers. You know, last weekend I was enjoying an incredible time of worship in the front. And because I've been studying so much about the subject of Jesus and I've been reading the Gospels and just living in that, I I just, as I was worshiping, I was like, wow, God, I really just feel so close to you. And I felt him say to me, you know, Starla, it's not about um, knowing God or having a knowledge of God. It's both and. And let me clarify, there are people, there are university professors that have a knowledge of God. They know about God, but they don't personally maybe believe in him or actually know him personally. And then we can be on the extreme side where it's all about knowing God. We don't pick up our Bible and find out about his character and find about who he is. You know, we just, we just go chasing, chasing man, chasing man's gifting, chasing prophetic words the whole time. It's not going to make you stand when trials come, when people ask you questions, hard questions about the faith. And you're just like, well, I have this word that I'm going to live a blessed life. That's not enough. I have experienced being filled with the Spirit. I have experienced being filled with joy. I have experienced those tangible um, things in life that where, where it's unexplainable and absolutely supernatural. But those things have happened maybe five times in my whole 30-something years. We have to be throwing ourselves into the knowledge of God and the knowledge of who He is. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. You know, we're meant to be winning over people. We're not meant to be destroying people in our conversations. We're meant to have a reason for our faith. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you have the hope that you have? Why do you have the faith that you have? Peter wrote that scripture, but it was very important for Jesus to say to Peter, look at him and say, Peter, you know, I know what everyone else says about me, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, I believe that you are the son of the living God, the anointed one. And Jesus said, well done, Peter. Actually, this translation says, blessed and favored and privileged are you. For no one told you this information, but you had this revelation from from the Father in heaven. And it's very important for us to have a revelation of who Jesus is and carry that as individuals. You can't live off the revelation of your wife, of your parents, of your husband, of your children. It's very important for you to carry a revelation. And I remember when I was in my season of partying and my mother was panicking and it was like, what is, you know, what's going to happen to her? And my dad said to her, Nadine, relax. She needs to find her own Jesus. 
And it's very important, of course, that you raise up your children and you're a voice in your children's life. You raise them up in the way of the Lord. You bring them to church. Of course, the, being under the word of God and being in youth and all of that does make an impact. But that is a whole lot of head knowledge. And we've got to trust God that they will find their own revelation of Jesus so that when that head knowledge and that heart knowledge meet, they will be an unstoppable force. We can't just have this blind leap of faith. Christianity is not just about that. It's also about evidence. If you read scripture, there's words like be convinced of your faith, be fully persuaded, give a reason, confirmation. You know, there was evidence in Scripture. Dan preached about it at the Easter service two weeks ago, and he wonderfully explained. It was one of the best sermons I've heard at Easter. Wonderfully explained the evidence with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We so easily believe in universities or whatever, the two sources that talk about Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, the two sources. And we have 5,333 manuscripts proving the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And there is evidence to our faith that we need, to, we need to really believe and hold to. You know, sometimes we as Christians can find questions quite intimidating and we, and we don't know where to start the conversations and so we just kind of shy away from them. But the best way is to ask questions. You know, I love going for coffees or meals with people and I literally 90% of the time I'm asking them questions. I want to know who they are. I want to know what makes them tick. I want to know what they, what, and I, and I listen. I probably don't listen here in church. I'm very distracted with everything that's going on. But when I'm in coffee, I listen and I listen to what they have to say. I want to know the person, understand them. And the best way we can find out a heart, the heart of a person is to ask questions. And Jesus asked 300 questions as he walked the earth, and just such profound questions. Why did he ask us questions? He's just not going around telling us what to do. He's actually asking us questions to make us think. Do we know? Do we believe? Do we understand this faith that we are in? And he was asked almost 200 questions, and he almost never gave a direct answer. He just was so clever in the way that he worded things. He sometimes asked them another question in his answer that got people to answer it for themselves. He's not creating robots. He's creating people with free will who can choose to follow Jesus. Jesus spent a lot of time in conversations with people. And if I ask you, was Jesus more influential in his preaching or in his conversations, what would you say? I believe that he was an incredible preacher. Scripture says thousands upon thousands of people flocked around him. Even people who, weren't, who, were, who were infuriated by what he said or didn't believe what he said sat at the edge of the seats, just riveted and just, we can't deny that this man has power and authority. And, and you know, he was the perfect example of someone who knew his father in heaven and experienced incredible intimacy, but he also studied in the synagogues and sat from a young boy just studying the word so that he knew how to answer his accusers. There was both knowledge of God and knowing God that he lived in. And I believe that just one example is Zacchaeus. If you think of a conversation that he had, he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for dinner. Everyone was horrified. How can you be hanging out with Zacchaeus? He's a fraud. He's stolen money. He's a thief. He intimidates. He uses people. Jesus has a conversation with him. He has dinner with him. This is not just at a preach. This is him speaking to him over dinner. I wish we knew what he said. But what the result of that conversation was, was Zacchaeus came at the end and said, Jesus, 
all of my possessions. I want to give half of my possessions to the poor. Also, anyone I've wronged, and he had a reputation, so he had wronged many people. I will pay back four times as much to each individual. Something had gripped or someone had gripped his heart to the point where that conversation led him to a transformed life. We can become so good at talking church, you know. I will tell my friends so easily to come to church. I'll talk to my hairdresser and anyone I meet. You should totally come to our church. There's coffee. There's croissants. You'll feel like a family. If you're lonely, we're a great community. And I will just talk for ages. And then they're like, wow, that just sounds so exciting. I don't mention God. And how, how much different is that from another social club that they get invited to? What's different about it? How am I transforming? How am I changing? And that's, why, that's where we really have to come. And, and it's with gentleness and respect you know, we can sometimes be so, so silent about it and so sensitive about it that we say nothing and we transform nothing in no one. Yes, I mean, inviting to church is the first step, but let's, let's have conversations that really stir up more desire for God. Are we living lives that people want to ask us those questions? Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We are here today because we've tasted of the Lord's goodness. We've tasted of him. We may not be in a season where things are going our way. We may not, we may be in a trial, but we know that we have tasted of the goodness of God. And are we inviting our friends to taste of the goodness of God? Dan and I celebrated our 11 year anniversary this week and he, and, and he, he spoiled me by taking me to a Greek restaurant and we just had incredible meals and dishes. And, but there is nothing like, when you reflect on that meal, there is nothing like the hot, fresh bread that comes in the beginning. <laughs> and what does Jesus say? He says, I am the bread of life. I am the one that fully satisfies what you're looking for. You can have your side dish of whatever it is, lamb chops and magnum ice cream and all sorts of other things, but it is the bread of life that fully satisfies and that hunger and that desperation. I don't care what people are giving off. Even if they're the hardest of hearts, they are hungry for meaning, for purpose, for love, for identity, for affection, for Jesus. Ravi Zacharias, who I will mention a lot because I got a lot of material from him. He's an incredible godly man, an apologist who, who makes complex subjects so simple to understand. And he said that he grew up not as a Christian, surrounded by Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, intelligent people. And they would just have the, because at university, just dialoguing on the highest level, and they would have these most incredible conversations. But he said, sadly, not one Christian, not one Christian spoke to him in that whole time growing up, for whatever reason. And he said it was only when he started struggling with suicidal thoughts did he start to ask himself, the meaning of life, God, why, whoever, why am I here? Am I really as a result of time plus matter plus chance? Or am I here as a result of a loving God that places value on me as an individual? Quinton Smith, a philosopher and atheist, said, We came from nothing, by nothing, for nothing. That is so depressing. That is meaningless. That is hopeless. 
There is no purpose or destiny in that. None of those worldviews answer these four fundamental questions that are in the heart of every human. Origin. Where did we start? Where, what's, how did we begin? Meaning. Do, does my life count? Morality. Why do I live with a conscience? Who put it there? And destiny. There's a quote by G.K. Chesterton for the atheist. Sorrow is fundamental and joy is peripheral. But for the Jesus follower, joy is central and sorrow is peripheral. What did he mean by that? For the Christian, for the Jesus follower, our fundamental questions are satisfied in him and in Scripture. We have our identity. We have love. We have origin answered, meaning, morality, and destiny. And then we always will have these little questions that we're on a journey of discovery to this amazing God. And then you've got for the atheist that, that fundamental questions will never be answered when you believe in nothing, that nothing created you, that nothing is planned for you. And then there's these little questions answered from science that they live and they grasp on and they, they hang on to. So what does Jesus say about these four questions? Origin, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was a creator. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So simple, the world has confused things and made things complex. Jesus made male and female in the beginning of time. There was a creator, there was purpose, and he created us to look like him. We look like God. It's incredible. I can already see from our scans with these two little babies, one looks exactly like Dan. He's got exactly Dan's chin. Or he, she. And then you've got another one that's got a completely different face, already starting to look like the parents. There is a beginning. There is a creator. Meaning, John three sixteen. for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Here is a God that wanted each person to have meaning. And so he died for every single one of you. And for those that don't even know him yet, they just need to believe in Jesus and their life will have meaning and worth. Morality, where did our moral conscience come from? If there's no God, where did the sense of right or wrong come from? Mark 7, and then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these vile things come from within our hearts. They are what defile you. Jesus is our morality. He is the truth in a godless world. That is why we look different and we are different and we have a different spirit. Many religions obviously encourage you to speak truth. But Jesus is the one that said, I am the truth. He was the full embodiment of truth walking on the earth. Destiny. 
Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's masterpiece. He calls us His masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. So actually, before you were even born, you had meaning, you had destiny, you had purpose because He thought of you before you were born and He planned good things for you to do. Destiny. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. What worldview and what God gives you a hope and a future and promises that to you? I saw a, a, a funny slash disturbing advert yesterday. This woman was about to give birth and she, she gives birth and she lets out this blood-curdling scream and this baby shoots out of her at a rapid rate and flies across the sky. I don't know if you've seen it. And then she just starts to, ch- this baby transforms quite rapidly from a baby to a toddler to, to a child to a teenager to a young adult to a middle-aged man to a grandpa and then falls down into the grave. And the slogan was, life is short, play more Xbox. (laughs) And I can tell you that the world is not offering you purpose or destiny. They're offering you distraction. In 2008, the British Humanist Association ran a marketing campaign backing atheist Richard Dawkins. Dawkins. And so behind me, you'll see a London bus. And I think there was like 150 buses that just started to drive around London and said, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. So what concerns me about that statement is the word probably. Probably. They're not even sure. But also, if you're about to jump out of a plane, you don't want that parachute to probably open. You want to be told that there is a certainty that that parachute will open. You know, and when Dan and I were in Hong Kong and we didn't quite recognize our meat, the guy says, oh, it's probably chicken. (laughs) I'm convinced it was dog. But anyways, that word probably is not a convincing statement. What are they also trying to suggest? That the be-all and end-off of life is the pursuit of happiness, is the pursuit of pleasure. Enjoy your life. And also what they're trying to say is that God takes away joy and that he just brings worry into your life. It's hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure. Life is all about happiness and positivity. I don't need God, I'm happy. Well, I'm glad that you're happy, but do you have meaning and purpose? And it's also quite exclusive to adopt that belief system. Not every nation can have that philosophy and way of life. It's unrealistic in war-torn countries, in poverty-stricken countries. Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we so often settle for the cheap imitation. Ravi Zacharias, all pleasure comes at a price. For the right kind of pleasure, you pay the price before you enjoy it. For the wrong kind of pleasure, you pay the price after you enjoy it. 
1 John 2.16, for all that the world can offer us, the gratification of our flesh, the allurement of the things of the world, and the obsession with status and importance, none of these things come from the Father, but from the world. I mean, there are just, people are consumed and obsessed with importance and, and status. And I can tell you that that's not just in DRC amongst whoever, the financial world. It's not just in those places. It can also creep into churches and pastors where they just obsessed with self-importance and status and who's got bigger this and who's got bigger that. Actually, that's all worldly thinking. None of this, the Bible says, comes from the Father. Rick Stanley is Elvis Presley's half-brother, and he said, drugs never killed my brother. It was fame that killed him because when that waned, he needed to find his worth in something. Happiness is very fluctuating and fleeting. And if we look at Jesus as an example, he carried joy, this deep-seated and rooted joy. He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It was actually through endurance and suffering and giving up his life that he found joy. It's actually what we give up. It's actually what we surrender. It's actually when we live for others that we have joy, not when we pursue our own pleasure. That will just lead to destruction. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. God is promising pleasure. He is promising joy. Jesus is who we pursue. He is our joy and our fulfillment. Philippians 3.8, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I can gain Christ. We sang it this morning. Christ is enough. So I really love about Hillsong songs. Their theology is so solid and so strong. And so you can just declare truth over your life. Christ is enough. His blood is enough. His forgiveness is enough. His salvation is enough. His promises are enough. You are enough because of Jesus. Let's remember that you are enough in Jesus. I love this. His promises are enough. Your promises have been thoroughly tested. That is why I love them so much. You will be tested. We were tested in these 10 years of really trusting God for children. And he would give us promises. And no, one, no major prophet and no, no one came up to us. This was just digging deep, digging deep in our hearts. We just felt God promising us certain things that looked impossible. Always felt God was going to give me twins. Never voiced it. I don't even think I voiced it to Dan. I just kept it hidden in my heart. And he just promised me. He just promised me. But what does he say? Your promises have been thoroughly tested. Don't expect to get promises from God and not expect those promises to be tested. His peace is enough. His love is enough. His grace is enough. And I just want to end off on, on this message of grace because it's something that I personally needed and it's something that we desperately need. 
We need a savior. We need Jesus. We need grace in our lives. We need his power and his enabling ability to carry us when we are weak. 2 Corinthians 12 says, So to keep me from becoming proud, Paul is writing this, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times, I begged the Lord, I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Jesus says, my grace is all you need. But I'm begging God that he would come through for me in this area. And he's saying, no, because you want that, but you need this. You need my grace. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is more than enough for you. How will we know if his grace is enough if we don't need his grace? How will we know that his peace is enough if we don't need his peace? I've experienced all of these things. I've needed forgiveness for my sin. I've needed to understand salvation. I've needed peace when I've been riddled with anxiety and fear. I've needed Jesus to be those things for me. And now grace, his grace is enough. Humanism, what is that? It's self-reliance. We can make this progress and this journey on our own. We can do it by ourselves. And all that leaves you is makes you hard, independent, and bitter. The decision of every human heart, self-reliance or God-reliance. Self-sufficiency or sufficiency in Christ. And that's why the Bible says, count it all joy when you experience trials of every kind. Because as Paul was facing this trial and as he was begging God to release him, that's when he realized how weak he actually was. He wasn't able to overcome this messenger of Satan or this thorn in the flesh, whatever it is. You can use your imagination to that. That he wasn't able to overcome that torment, that torment. And he said, God, help me in this. And it's so natural and so easy for us to want to take away and alleviate that pain and that unnecessary uh, trials. And we take it as rejection. You know, we, we feel abandoned because we think this is how God should treat us. This is how God should come through for us. And we feel abandoned in those dark moments. But a lot of us Christians are living conditionally and not positionally. And so we just want all those conditions to line up. You know, I mean, we, we know, for those of you who are parents who have children, you are creating monsters when you give them what they want all the time. But what about waiting until Christmas or until their birthday and their gift is so much sweeter? Otherwise, they just use you for what they can get. And we, we have to have this relationship with God that we actually see that He is enough for us. Not the thing we're asking for, but that He is enough for us. And we need to be, we need to understand where we stand positionally in Scripture, that we are a child of God, whether He gives us what we want or not. We are, child, we are loved of God, whether He gives us what we want or not. Because the test is never in the yes. The test is in the no. That's really the test of the heart. Just tell someone, no, sorry. See what starts to come out in their heart. If God is saying no in the present, 
That's because he is setting you up for a bigger yes in the future. I remember a few years ago, I was having a low moment on the subject of not falling pregnant. And I remember just just lying there all very helpless. And I just felt God say one word to me. I'm setting you up. Or one phrase. And if I think about that now, I didn't understand it at the time. I had to take him at his word. Because I wanted him to say, here's your baby. But he said, I'm setting you up. And only now in hindsight do I see, wow, God, you've really set us up. You've really positioned us at this time of our lives for the promise to be fulfilled, for your timing to be fulfilled. Because he actually is thinking of you every minute of the day. He is actually planning good for you every minute. He actually can see the desires of your heart. But allow him to work out something in you. If you want to be God's person, you've got to go through his process. Teddy, I wonder if you can come and play and just minister over us. God is wanting to build in us maturity. How do promises come? It's through faith and patience. We inherit the promises of God. It's not through bitterness. It's not through hardness of heart. It's through faith and it's through patience. God is wanting to speak. Because what is a promise? It's when he comes and speaks to you in your dark place. Something about what's lying ahead for your future. He's wanting to make that a reality. He's wanting to manifest that. But he's wanting to work in you so that you're prepared for that promise. That you're positioned for that promise. Romans 8.28 says, So we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together to fit into God's perfect plan of bringing good into our lives. For we are His lovers who have been called to fulfill His designed purpose. Don't you love that we follow a God and we believe in a God and we trust in a God that has a perfect plan and design and destiny for each one of us. That we have those fundamental questions satisfied in Him of meaning, of origin, of destiny, of morality. It's found in Him. Annie Johnson Flint, she wasn't someone, she was someone who needed grace in her life. She wrote hymns between 1866 and 1932. She was orphaned. She had such bad arthritis that she, that she was in a wheelchair for most of her life. She had cancer. She was incontinent and she was blind. And in that state, she had a revelation that Jesus was enough. She had a revelation that His grace was enough. And this is the hymn she wrote. He gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sends more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, He adds His mercy. To multiplied trials, His multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed and the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto man. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He gives and He gives and He gives again.